The following program was produced by Community Producer. The content, views, and opinions expressed are the sole responsibility of the Community Producer and do not reflect Malden Access Television, the City of Malden, or your cable provider. MATV welcomes your comments. Call us at 781-321-6400 or email us at access at matv.org. Good evening, and welcome to Malden 02148. I'm Ed Lucy, your, your moderator for the evening, and my guest is Tim McCarthy, who is, uh, has an interesting story to tell us, but a local business not very well known, and that's the EMAS, or? Uh, East of Middlesex Alcoholism Services Incorporated. Yeah, and that's located? Well, that's that's near the center. Near is, the s- is it, because it's a, uh, a confidential program, uh, in which for recovering men, it's better if I really don't mention where it is. Okay. But it, it's been uh, it's been there for um, oh since 1981, so we're talking you know pushing on 40 years, yeah. and it's in a very residential section. So we're just part of the neighborhood yeah. and, and very well accepted. And but we also have uh, in addition to that, we have four graduate programs. We have a graduate program that's in the house, about eight beds. And then we have three freestanding programs that, uh, that are all in Malden. And we just purchased our last one, I believe it was September, around September 8th and 9th. And um, should I go back and should I explain it or give history? Or yeah, well, uh, and I, maybe just as a throw out a disclaimer, yeah. although Tim and I have met recently, um, I am a former board member right. of right. EMAS. And uh, years after I left the board, uh, my son Sean was on the board. Yes. And uh, since then, uh, my son Gregory has, uh, when my son Sean became ill, Gregory went on the board, and he's the president of the board, I he's think. He's my boss. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I don't know. He'd, I don't think he'd take claim for that. But anyway, <laughs> the history, I think uh, what's impressive to me, not only having some involvement directly and over the years, but and the involvement of where it was when I was on the board versus where it is now in terms of the, the, the success stories and the kinds of things that they do to help people recover from illnesses that we now accept as part of the alcoholism situation sometimes Double addiction, which is also a chemical addiction with, with drugs, is is that um, it's among us in every in every strata of society, and in some instances, people just bury their ha- head in the sand and they they find excuses for themselves, and maybe they enable somebody else in some instances. But kind of give us a history, if you would, of the the program. The program, uh, I think, it started in the late seventies. It was originally in Salem Street, I believe. In 1981, uh, the main uh, residential program, and I should explain there's a difference between residential and graduate, uh, the EMAS program is a 30-bed state-funded program for recovering men. I'm talking about alcohol and drugs. It was formed uh, in 1981 
and has been in the same location since that time. About 2000, it was expanded from a 25-bed facility to a 35-bed facility by putting on an addition. And that extra 10 beds was used as a graduate program. Uh, and it was really progressive at the time, is, is that the, the directors, the board of directors that did that, along with John Brennan, who was a friend of mine, who was the executive director at that time, knew that one of the important things that wasn't being done is that structured or sober housing, good, safe, structured or sober housing, wasn't being provided to the men. So they would be three to six months in a program and then would go off. Now, I should go back, Ed, in, 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 traditionally. Traditionally, what happened with what they call halfway houses, we, we call recovery houses now, it, which was an outgrowth, really, of the correctional institution, therefore, in, institutions, therefore, halfway house, was that you would have men who had difficulty with alcohol primarily, we're talking about in the 60s and the 70s, and then cocaine and alcohol in, in the 80s, and then you get into opiates and a variety of uh, different drugs in the 90s and all the way up uh, till today. The belief was that, that you provided a safe, sober place, that you provided some counseling, that you provided some food, it was safe, and the men would go to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And then after three to six months, six months would be the ideal amount of time, they would return to their families. And hopefully by that point in time, they had worked in some counseling and that reconciled the the wives and would, would have gone to Al-Anon and uh, then go on with their life. I mean, that was... That was what Bill Wilson, the guy that started Alcoholics Anonymous, that's, that's the people that he was dealing with. Uh, by the time that I took over the program in 2009, is there were few alcoholics in, in the program. In fact, across the state, the majority of people who were in the 77, I think, recovery homes across the state were mainly opiate addicts, heroin addicts, pill addicts, Oxycontin addicts. That changed in the late 90s when OxyContin became a popularly prescribed drug. And, you know, we're hearing about all that now, and there's a lot of blame being thrown around between the primary care physicians and the pharmaceutical companies and all that. But the fact was is, is that uh, a lot of people were being prescribed pain pills at that time. It was much more available, uh, and they were getting them from the doctors, not because the doctors were, ne- and this is my opinion, not because the doctors were necessarily careless about it, but the people that I deal with who are addicted are very slick and they're very clever and they're very drug-seeking. So they knew where to go and how to get it and the things to say. For example, if there was pain, uh, I mean, OxyContin was originally designed for like hospice patients. You know, if you're uh, to the end of your life and you have chronic pain, as taking two, two perks, two Percocets every four hours when you're in a lot of pain and, you know, it, it doesn't really work out. Uh, but OxyContin was developed so as a time release so that you could take one pill in the morning and one pill at night. It was very simple, and the chance of overdose wasn't really that high. So it was being prescribed not just to them, but also people were coming in requesting it and saying, oh, no, it really works for me, doctor. It really works for me and my bad knees is the OxyContin. And doctors sort of fell into that trap, into the pain trap, and they believed at that time, is that underprescribing of pain, and this was in, in the 90s, was a major problem in our country. 
And since that time, under-prescribing, under under absolutely. Okay. There was a big change, and, I, and, and, and forgive me for those who are watching that uh, know more about this than I do, but my understanding is that the AMA, American Medical Association, back in about 94, 95, uh, started talking about the under-medication of pain. And that's when pain clinics started to come in. And the belief was is that whereas years ago, if you were having an operation in the 70s and 80s, you had to hit the button and beg the nurse to get a shot of morphine, and they would discourage you or they would say only if you needed it. When the 90s came around, that was a different, it was a different situation, is the doctors wanted people adequately managed on pain. And, and and we have since found out that that has been terribly abused, not by everybody. I mean, most people just take the pain pills as they're prescribed. They have a tooth tooth taken out. They have, uh, you know, a break or, or, or something. And, and they get rid of the pain pills as soon as they can. But there are certain individuals who are at high risk for addiction who then gravitated from whatever meds or drugs they were taking in the 90s to opiates, because the opiates add to a lot of individual is, is almost like a wonder pill. And, and, and by that I mean that um, opiates, um, Oxycontin, Percocet, especially in the Oxycontin, will give people a lot of uh, energy. It will take away whatever pain they have, give them a lot of energy. And if individuals have anxiety or depression, it will really smooth that out. So it really is, in the beginning, for some people, a wonder drug. What happens, though, is an addictive process develops, and when that addictive process develops, then an individual starts looking for it, and they start scamming doctors, they start buying it off the street, and then when it became too expensive with the pills, because it was at one point in time uh, a dollar a milligram, then what the dealers do is, you know, they, they're the best enterprises in the world. They started putting out heroin that was purer and cheaper, and so when in individuals couldn't get the Oxycontin and couldn't afford it, they then went to heroin. And then that's when the, uh, the heroin epidemic uh, started, you know, in 2007, 8, 9, leaving up to 10 and, and, and in this decade, and which, that, which has then led to fentanyl being involved and mixed in with the heroin. And now most of the heroin out there is not heroin at all. It is mostly fentanyl. And we're seeing incredible amounts of over, overdoses and, and, and deaths and um, it is, as the president just called it, a, 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 uh, a national uh, emergency, and Governor Baker is very attuned to that. Does the president give any money, though? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I can tell you, not from the federal point of view, because I'm sure that we have had that, but, but our state with, with, with Governor Patrick and Governor Baker, they have been very supportive of those of us who are running residential programs because they know that the people who are coming to us now are much sicker than they were in 1975 and 80 when they were 45-year-old men who just drank too much and then developed alcoholism, were kicked out of the house and then go to the halfway house, go to A, get well, go back to the wife, that type of stereotype. Now the people that I see who come in are much younger. The average age is about 27 or 28 across across the state, much different than, than, than 40, 45 years. Uh, they have uh, co-occurring disorders. They have, uh, um, in, many, in many, many cases, very troubled childhoods, depression, anxiety, and use the opiates and drugs they took before in order to medicate themselves, just to feel better. And then what happened to those people whose genetics 
were predisposed to addiction is they got caught up in the addictive process and then went further and further into it, and so they finally ended up with heroin. Now, uh, and your background, yeah. although you've only been involved in approximately 10 years, yeah. you've been involved in these kinds of uh, programs and, and dealing with issues similar to this for a long time, both at the uh, state level and now at the local level? Yes, yeah. yes. Is, is I've been very fortunate in my career to be able to do a lot of things. Uh, is Let's see, it's in, in the, the late 90s, I was involved with the uh, suicide cluster that was in South Boston with the six young men who would hang themselves uh, at that time and learned a lot about that. That was a combination of substance abuse but really mental health. It was, as we learned from the Center for, for Disease Control, it was like an epidemic, a contagion that happens. And we don't know why it starts, but it happens within a certain area geographically. It's communicated through word of mouth or media or in which, in which either a certain demographic will commit suicide in a certain way. It's not really a copycat thing. It's, 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 it's a real issue. And there was some drug involvement with that. Uh, after that, I get involved in... Um, in working in the state, working with professionals, which is a complete 180 from what I do right now. I was working with dentists and pharmacists and nurses. They had a couple of programs when I started, and they had the SAR program for nurses that I ran, ran for a while, that substance abuse re rehabilitation program. That's really written into the general laws of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So that if you're a nurse and that you have a problem with taking drugs or being caught for an OUI, and you're a danger of maybe hurting your patients, that you're offered an alternative to discipline by getting into a diversionary five-year program. And the programs that these professionals were in that I managed were very intense programs. They were, as I said, five years long. There was a lot of drug screening. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a lot of drug screening. There was a lot of meetings they had to go to. And the success rate of that for completion anyway was very high. It was very high, and at one point in time, we had about 250 or 260 nurses in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who were in the, in the, uh, the substance abuse program, many who graduated, many who are working out in hospitals and clinics today doing an excellent job because this disease can, can be managed. It can be treated, it can be managed, and people can work as professionals. Not everybody, but many of them can uh, the only profession I really wasn't involved with was the physicians. The physicians have their own program, an excellent program, uh, called Physician Health Services. That's part of the, uh, the Mass Medical Society. And, but every, everybody, as you mentioned before, everybody's family, everybody's profession, everybody knows somebody who has some problem with drugs or alcohol. It has affected everybody in our community, in our state, in our country. A number of years ago, uh, and it wasn't just Limit to Malden, they had a lot of activity where people were uh, starting out or creating or establishing sober homes. <laughs> and um, th th there was a lot of controversy. Of, of sometimes the location wasn't <laughs> too enthusiastic received by the neighbors. Um, the other issue that, uh, that it would happen is uh, some of them came in quick. People weren't even aware they right. were there. And they, I think the reason they had the, a special exemption was they were considered educational sites in which exempted them from the zoning laws. I, I guess. Some, some way they pulled it off. They did. And, but, um, but it gave uh, sober homes in general a bad name bad because name. They, uh, I had a little, somewhat little experience dealing with some people and at that time who had them. And um, 
and, and the thing was that the um, the bottom line was important. Keep the beds occupied. So they didn't have rules that applied that they stuck to, which was a, not such a good idea. You have to have mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, they uh, they overlooked behavior that not only impacted the person who was misbehaving, but also influenced some of the other residents. And Absolutely. the result was things went from bad to worse. Sure. But the bottom line look good to the person that established the home. As, far, as a matter of fact, I'm all, I think I still am aware that there are a number of them still in existence here locally. Um, they're yeah. comparable to yours in some ways, but really not work the way your program right. do. To give us a beginning. Uh, I'm a prospective client, as right. it were. Well, what happens? How do I get you to take me in, or how do I even <clears> reach out to you? Well, you can't come into the sober homes that I have uh, the four that I have, unless you graduate from our program. So it's all under, <coughs> excuse me, it's all under our umbrella. For another home, and, and they're, they're much more regulated now. The state has taken over a certification of that. So even all on, these even on the sober homes, if sober homes. Oh, good. Okay. So if you have these for-profit homes, and and somebody's running it, and they're making money, now they have to have certain, very similar to what we have in our particular homes. They have to have drug screening. There has to be certain things that need to be done. They have to be cleaned up. Uh, the men have to get certain services. And that happened, I think, about a year ago. So it is much better now. <coughs> Excuse me. It's much better now than it used to be. When I started in 2009, uh, and that's when these for-profit homes were all over Malden, as you remember. They were everywhere because there was a tremendous need. Uh, and then, and then individuals would charge a certain amount of money to come in, and, and, and what would happen? There'd be a long waiting list, and there'd be probation and parole, and they'd be filling the beds, and and all. And and uh, but also the neighbors, and, and and you know, I I feel bad for the neighbors. I mean, I can understand when we started purchasing homes. Is Greg and I would drive around to, to various places looking for an appropriate home that had enough rooms, had enough beds, had enough parking spaces. But we were also very sensitive to the neighborhood. And he would be able to say, oh, this would be more acceptable here or it wouldn't be more acceptable here because there's no way that we want our men to be in a community and to be in a neighborhood and for whatever reason not wanted there by the neighbors. Because what's going to end up happening is somebody's going to find something wrong, somebody's going to find a complaint, somebody will have an ax to grind, and what will happen will be there'll be complaints and it'll be a mess similar to what you were talking about it before. So we did it very systematically. We purchased our first home in 2012. We purchased the second one in 2015. And we purchased the last one, as I said, in September. And our the way that we do it is that when you're a resident in our program, and if you complete and graduate, you can go, and that's about six months, you go upstairs. And there are beds upstairs. You're still in our facility, so you're still with the staff. You're still being drug screened. You're still, you know, we're watching you. Uh, you pay rent as opposed to a treatment fee, and there are definite rules to that. Uh, generally, people can stay there for six months to a year. That's like six months. Now you have a year. Then the... Um, the first house you can go to is, again, because they're all stepped down, is Sean Woosey House after your son. And that's away from us about a, uh, about a mile. But my program director, Phil Lydiard, he goes over there and he manages it. The men, some of them work for me um, at, at the main house that we have. 
All of them are required to go to counseling. They're required to go to meetings. They have to kind of check in with us. We have to eyeball them. Uh, and they're in a neighborhood that was, was initially maybe not as receptive because we bought the house that was one of those houses you were talking about. I know that. I remember yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, and the day that we passed papers on it in 2012, there were still four active alcoholics in the house. That was terrible because, you know, I had to move in there and, and the landlord who was selling it and making money off the thing, he obviously didn't do what he needed to do to place these men. And um, we remember how sad it was to watch them walking down the street with basically no place to go. Now, that used to happen all the time back then. So what happened to those four? Those four is, is they would probably go to Pine Street. I'm sure they were getting a check somewhere that was paying their rent. So they were getting some money coming yeah, in yeah. and doing that. But they, a lot of those homes were not really safe back then because, as you say, they were making money. Yeah. Things have changed. Some of them were good, but some of them weren't good. I met with my trustees, my, my, my board of directors. They are very, very supportive of me, very supportive of me. And in 2012, when Greg became the president uh, of, of my board, uh, they allowed me to start the first one, the, the first one, and to buy the first one in, in 2012. Now, you had already said in our conversations that there was a three-quarter house, which is the old term for these things. In Medford. Medford, way back then. That didn't work out. It was a disaster. No. So when I originally presented it to my, uh, to my directors, that was the first taste they had was because a lot of these kids, they're all in recovery, and they hear about three-quarter way houses and sober houses, and they didn't want our good name affiliated with them. Uh, but eventually, they took a shot, and Greg and I looked everywhere in Malt for the right place to go, and there was that program there, and the neighbors had kind of accepted it. There weren't that many problems, so we bought it at that point in time, and then we spent a lot of time putting the right guys in there. They were solid guys. They had a lot of sobriety. I handpicked them. I put them over there, and one of the big things was community relationships. I told them it was a, uh, a cul-de-sac. So it was only about six houses in the street. And I said, when the snow flies, you go out and you shovel the snow for the elderly people on the street. You make friends with them. You let them know who you are. You tell them their name. And I'm telling you, our guys were fabulous, Ed. They were fabulous. The, the guys I have there now are about the third or fourth generation of men that I've had over there because, as I've said, that the goal is to keep them on our continuum and move them from house to house. They developed incredible relationships, so much so when they moved on to the next leg of their journey, the neighbors would say, where'd he go? I miss him, and, 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 and all that. So that was very successful, but, but you know, my directors would keep an eye on that, and we wanted to know we were going to get calls from the cops, and we are going to get any relapses, and we, were, we managed that very tightly. It was so successful, and it remained full all the way through, oh, God, I, I think full since 2014, is we had some revenue, and I'll mention a name of somebody who was incredibly supportive to me, the Department of Public Health, and that's Jim Kramer. Jim Kramer is now, I think, the assistant director of BSAS, Bureau of Substance Abuse. He helped me uh, to move forward with this because he believed in the concept that we had is that we wanted to have what they call structured housing. We, we wanted not under our umbrella so we would have quality control. So in 2015, we purchased another one that, that didn't have quite as many beds, almost as many beds, 
bigger house, but that was where they, where the guys would go after they were in the, in the six-month program and then the six months upstairs, now six months in the first house and six months in the second house that they have. And that filled up. Excuse me, that house, um, <laughs> and I happen to know the house, um, has a lot of history of its own, all positive, by the way. Oh, really? So, so maybe there's good karma. That's the reason it's been so successful. The other thing I just want to quickly note is this is a men's-only program. Men's-only. Okay, because uh, that's uh, looking back, um, I think the um, – I don't remember if that one in Medford was co-educational or not, but it, that would might have, it ended up co-educational, whether it was supposed to be or not. And then I think there's one in Malden that uh, yeah. I, I drive by. There's yeah, nothing to I've heard you. that. I've and heard I that. think I see both men and women there, and I'm saying I don't know how good that would work out alone. Well, you know, there's a tremendous need, uh, particularly for women, who yeah. are the most vulnerable of anybody that's Absolutely. out there. There's a tremendous yeah. need for structured sober housing everywhere. There is a very well-known... Uh, program called Granada House, which is a co-ed recovery home run by a friend of mine, uh, Deb Loss in, in, in Brighton, in which you know some people say is the best thing that ever happened to them. Some people say it didn't work. Uh, what we have is it's all, of course, it's all men, but I have seven women working for me because in most, in, I'm talking mostly counselors, and, and that's because the, the men that I have um, have women's issues too. And some of the men can't really talk to other men because of abuse issues they had in the past, but they can talk to women. So I have a wonderful blend. And I'm telling you, in, in, and I know my staff is taping this. They they threatened me they would tape this. Oh, they, oh good. They'll save me a tape. Then, <laughs> then we give one up. <laughs> that's, your, that's your fee for guest appearance. That's, fine. that's fine. <laughs> and, and, you know, I could not, EMAS would not be as successful if it wasn't for my board of directors, but especially the wonderful, talented staff that I have who've been with me for years. That's a recommendation in itself. Yeah, it, in, in, I'm blessed with that because turnover is a huge problem right. in a lot of these houses. And I, I just am extremely lucky in, in the people that I've had, and I'll do whatever I can to keep them because the bottom line is the men get the services, and that's what we're all in this right. for. Um, under the best scenario, yeah. um, even under the professional care, there's a level of failures regardless yeah. for other reasons unrelated. They graduate yeah. the program. You, you Sometimes if someone were to fail after they graduated right. went out into the world again, do they sometimes come back into the program? Yeah. Oh, they do. Yeah. This, this, the original thing that most recovery homes had is that you'd have one shot at that. Yeah. And then the other, the other would be is you can't come back for a year. Some programs be, believe strongly that if, if you haven't got it in their program once, there's no sense to come back and again try someplace really? else. I think that we're all in a bit of a different place right now. I know that, that I am. And that is that I've taken multiple men back a second time. Um, I've had one person back a third time, but th that's really kind of stretching it. However, what I do is if a person comes back a second time, in most cases they're only there for three months, and then I find a bed for them in my graduate continuum. Right. Uh, and and so I'm I'm not opposed to considering any kind of combination depending upon the individual. In fact, in the last house that we just bought this year, I've decided to use that as a place where where one of my men who I know well, who who is he's working hard on their recovery but just can't seem to get it, instead of going to a, a, another sober house 
if I have a bed, even though he's not part of my program now, I'll take him in. And Because the, the thing that I foster in EMAS, all of us foster and we all bought into, is that we are trying very hard to create a community where these men feel like they belong that they're well taken care of, they're appreciated, and they belong. And don't get me wrong, you know, is I'm pretty tough and pretty firm with the rules because you have to be when you're dealing with guys. But with men, it's all about, it's all about um, a status and pecking order. And, you know, anthropologically, I don't think that with that, you can ask any women. I, respect. I, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, the guy just got out of jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that if you ask most women, they'd say, yeah, men are pretty simple like that. And <laughs> and uh, what we foster in our, uh, our places, I, I have certain bugaboos that I have. And you know, I don't allow swearing in the house. I don't allow them to wear certain things. I, you know, and some of the other houses will do that. But, but to me, it, it creates an atmosphere where, with all the women that I have working there, is not an appropriate atmosphere or a holding environment in which which they can get rid of the street, get rid of the trappings of their former life. So uh, we create this feeling where they feel psychologically and physically safe, and we have a tremendous amount of interaction with them. And the typical recovery home that's been around for years, and it is changing now, uh, and it, this goes back to what you were talking about, success rates. Because I, I'm, we've, we've had a lousy success rate. I mean, I can't give you an exact number because the only way that you can find out if programs work, substance abuse programs work, would be if you drug screen people every day for the next five years. And then you had, you know, the empirical evidence that said, yeah, this person's been sober all these days. If you do the anecdotal stuff, you can't believe what people say. I've been sober this, I've been sober that. So we only have estimates of that. But our estimates are... It's really not well at all in that in that I, I don't I, I, I would even hesitate um, to put out there what a number would be except for the fact that we base it on on we base it on how many men complete or graduate from our program and, and at least fifty percent uh, at any year of the men who come into our program either complete it like three months or they graduate from it. We have very, very high success rate. That doesn't mean that they all stay sober. But I have 31 graduates in my system right now. And probably I was asking one of my staff the other day, how many, how many people do you think that you, that you hear from or, or, or that you see who are living on their own and they're not, not continuum now? And they estimated about 20, 25. So I can probably account for you know, uh, 55, 60 guys who've gone through the program over the, over the years that, that are sober today or have relapsed once and got back on track. Uh, and I think, I think that's pretty good. But, I, but uh, the only way that I believe that you can do this thing is that you have to offer them more than, than what has been offered in recovery programs in the past. Um, I'm thinking back. Uh, I, I recall there used to be... Um a program and before your time, David Suskind. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I remember him. Yeah, and anyway, but I do recall one time he had a program on, had to deal with drug addicts. And in those, those that came under the, the uh, tr- uh, tr- criminal system and the federal yeah. law, yeah. They, they would send them to Leavenworth. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but they had one particular prison they would yeah. send them to. And the dilemma that happened is when they get out, yeah. after doing their sentence, yeah. 
uh, and this was instances where you didn't sell the stuff. You yeah. just were you were addicted. Yeah. There was a, a harsh, tough get tough law back way back, and uh, punish the person. That'll, that'll straighten them up. Well, yeah. obviously they didn't do it. But one of the real issues would occur is that once they get out of the federal penal system, the dilemma they had was they ended up back in the environment that caused them to absolutely maybe gravitate towards drugs anyway. Correct. So now when you graduate people out of the programs that you, you've got imp- implemented. How much aftercare can they get from you? Because they're they're now in theory able to independently sus- sustain themselves out the community. They've got employment in some instances. Yeah, they're all and, working. And hopefully, what's going to happen is that they're going to end up uh, uh, being able to maintain f- free of the structure that you provided. Well, and then it goes back to the way it's always been: is yeah. that people have to rely upon twelve-step programs, yeah. or they rely upon church, or they. Buy- Rely upon outpatient counseling. Good woman. <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever really works at that yeah, point in time. Yeah, yeah. But we believe that the first two or three years, they need more than just a three to six month yeah. recovery home. Yeah. And that's why we put it all. Yeah. Where do your clients come from? The way the system is set up is that our clients will go to a detox, get referred to something called a CSS and and a transitional program that like they're holding environments, yeah. and and the people who work very hard in these programs match the men and women up with the residential programs out there, usually in a geographical area, and so we have probably six, seven, or eight transitional programs that refer to us. Uh, by the time they get to us, they have a month and a half, two you know, two months sobriety. But sometimes our guys want to come to our program so much that they'll wait. Like we have waits up to three to four months when there hasn't been any movement and there hasn't been any bed because they've heard that we're a very structured program, that we have a high success rate, and they're waiting to come uh, after being accepted. And they've, been in, they've often been in other programs before they were? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah I, I, at any given time, we've had, peop- we've had guys who've been in five, six recovery homes and it's the same pattern, Ed, is they, they always relapse really for the same reason. And that when we, if we accept them in, uh, because we call them on that, and we interview them all, and we'll call them that and basically say, you know, what's going to be different this time? And you know, why come in here if you're going to do the same thing again? And we're a different type of program because we have a lot of counseling. I have two people right now uh, who have been with me for eight years who are in master's programs, who came in with community college degrees, who got a bachelor's, and and the agency supports this with, with tu- tuition remission, who are now in master's programs, who are able to provide services to their clients. Almost everybody that I have working for me is licensed or about to be licensed, and, and uh, I probably have 30 40% more clinical hours, face-to-face hours, um, with uh, with the men with my with my clinicians than the average house does because it's the models different. When I came in, and and Sean Lucy, your son Sean was my boss, and I negotiated to come in. I said, fine, I'll do this thing, but I got to do it my way. And my experience was even before I get into addictions was working in. Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska, Father Flanagan's Boys Town. Which He's not heavy father. He's my brother. <laughs> that's right, which is a very behavioral program. I learned a tremendous amount of uh, amount work in there with some very heavy-duty kids and young men at that time. 
and that experience and and the other experience I've had. By the way, as, that was 1938 with Spencer Tracy. <laughs> yeah, been, the great movie. movie. Great movie. Yeah. 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 And, and, I and was Mickey in, Rooney. Mickey Rooney. That's Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney. Yeah. Right. And I was able to take the experience that I've had and bring it in and develop uh, a, a different type of program that I think that DPH, Department of Public Health, is looking at that type of model and saying, um, I think we want to go in that direction. Now, it's not all me, is that since 1981, is EMAS has always had the first month of the six months that you're there is, is and when most programs, if you're in there for just learning the ropes for a couple of weeks, you got to go and get a job, and they get to pay a treatment fee, et cetera. You go to AANA at night, and, and that's your, basically your treatment. You get some counseling, but it wasn't as intense as maybe as it could have been. And... Uh, Oz, since 1981, has been different. I can't even tell you the reason why it was set up that way, but whoever did it was brilliant because they were way before their time. I was able to build upon that, especially with the graduate program that Sean, Sean Lucy and John Brennan set up and, and was able to, you know, to expand it from that point in time and hire more staff to do that. So uh, I've had a lot of resources to work with and, and, and mainly because of what was done before I came in there. If someone were a, um, in a category by definition currently of a, an illegal person, uh, would they be eligible to be in your program? Uh, if the Department of Public Health will fund them, yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't ask. I don't ask. I, I, which, which, yeah. which obviously would be important. I only thought about that because yeah. of so much going on now with, yeah. with the, the, what's, the, what's illegal and what isn't. But the, the other thing I was going to mention was that uh, the people that come in, um, do they sometimes have private funding? As a, almost exclusive through the state. Yeah, it, it's it's some have um, a commercial insurance, but that's like probably two percent. Yeah, uh, and that's changing. By the way, is is the whole system is changing? My understanding is next year, but they're all uh, most of the guys are funded on a per diem basis yeah. by uh, Mass Health. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you have SSI people too? Those are people by have sure. disabilities, so sure. you get so that money would be. Use it to defray their expenses. You've got to see the history of this. The history of the halfway house back then was you wouldn't take any funny money. You wouldn't take people on unemployment. You wouldn't take uh, somebody on disability because what you want them to do is to work because it's part of their rehabilitation. I mean, I certainly believe in that because we're a working house. Yeah. But I have also taken multiple people who have been SSI yeah. uh, if, it was, if it was appropriate uh, we, we, in fact, sometimes encourage people to give up their SSI and to work because we felt it would be much better for their recovery yeah. if they did that. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, occasionally we've had people who have been on employment, but our guys won't work for the first month as opposed to the first two weeks in, in a lot of other programs. Well, they after a month, yeah. yeah, yeah. After and, m- now, some of them wouldn't be, um, although obviously you could be on a bus line, but if, if someone had a... Uh, go to work and didn't have a, yeah. a license, or didn't matter, they won't have a car anyway. I mean, do you have a van that shuffles? Them? No. They don't have that. Well, we have a van, and, and you know, back when they used to do that, yeah. and, and but we don't do that anymore. I don't know who really does that anymore, yeah. is that we provide T-passes, because we're right outside of Malden yeah. Station. So. Yeah. Yeah. so in the first month of the there, and most of them don't have, most of these guys don't have any money, yeah. that, that the agency will purchase a T-pass, costs about yeah. 19 bucks. And that will allow them to go to meetings and also look for work. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. Um, I know of a personal situation. Some years ago, it was a young man in a family that had some issues, and uh, 
it ended up they made some arrangements to go to, into a program, but they he was he wasn't in any of those things, so they ended up uh, uh, paying themselves to, to sure. uh, for the time that he was there. Sure. And uh, so I, I don't imagine he had many of those. No. 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 Uh, um, the the um, you mentioned about the ones that you've been able to track after they've left, and and they've been able to maintain their sobriety. And uh, uh, you find that in the years that um, you've been in this professional endeavor, that the addiction to drugs is more difficult to uh, overcome than the uh, the alcoholism. That there might have been a, a, an issue with, when years ago with people in, in programs like yours. Yeah, opiates is because of the physical nature of it, yeah. is that in, in order to get physically addicted to alcohol, most people who are alcoholics are not physically addicted to it. That's, yeah. A lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. In order to be physically addicted to alcohol, uh, you have to have increased tolerance and withdrawal symptoms. So you got to really drench your tissues for many years yeah. to be physically addicted to alcohol. It's more of a psychological thing. Yeah. With opiates, three weeks. Yeah. So the, the, that in itself creates a level of resistance um, that's much more than working with alcohol. On the other hand, if I had my staff right now, in the clinical staff right here, and I asked them, would you rather work with, with a 26-year-old heroin addict or a 45-year-old alcoholic, every one of them would raise their hands and say, a 26-year-old heroin addict. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's because alcohol, <laughs> the alcohol ego uh, with somebody, particularly if they're older in their 40s and their 50s and been out there for a while, there is an ego that comes with alcoholism that you really don't see in addiction as much. And you have to learn to be able to have symptom tolerance and, and tolerate that. So I make sure when I train, I get all my, I hire all my, my counselors from interns. I, I taught in UMass Boston, the addictions program, for 30 years. I just retired from that. And uh, I think all but one went through that program. They were an intern, and then I trained them. And then I hired them into our system. And uh, all of them are exposed to a variety of individuals that I'll give them. But I make sure that everybody has the joy of working with a 47-year-old alcoholic with that arrogance that comes with that. Because all that is, is a, it, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of alcoholism that is somewhat unique. And is it partly that denial? Well, denial is, denial is interesting. Because uh, denial is, is the most primitive defense mechanism that we all have. I mean, denial is, is we all need denial. I mean, that's, that's what helps us survive, is when somebody has a sudden death or a terrible thing that happened. I mean, just look at what's happened in the news, and it happened down in Texas, and happened out there, the shooting and people dying. And, and the trauma of that immediately clicks people into healthy denial, is that they're numbed. The, the, the mind has evolved to the point that it won't let in to the fact that five members of my... I heard there was, there was five, six members of one family that well, were dead. They were in piles. Three generations. Oh, my God. Is, is, it's like when you go to a funeral that somebody has suddenly died and you go up and, and you say, boy, isn't she taking it well or isn't he taking it well? Is, is that's because they're in denial, is, is that the mind has clicked into a certain numbness and it takes a healthy mind a while to work through the stages to get there. So we all need denial. The denial that my folks have is from the disease. The denial protects them. It protects them from insight into, in, into the damage that the disease has done them. And, and, and this is what's hard for, for non-recovering people like yourself to understand. 
And and I can understand why, like a lot of people maybe watching this who aren't in recovery themselves, say, why don't they just stop? They get arrested for the second OUI and they get busted again. They've been in treatment three times. Can't they see this? Why don't they just stop? But I've been in recovery for 34 years, so I've been on that side. And I understand what happens to your mind because the moment your addictive mind takes over, you don't view things the same way. Immediately when people relapse, that denial comes right back and you're not viewing, you know what the best way to look at, I think, is the anorexic woman. Usually women, most, most anorexics see young women, all women. And when an anorexic woman is 80, 81 pounds, and she's stock naked looking in the window, how, look in the mirror, how does she see herself? Does she see herself as 81 pounds? No. No. She sees herself as 250 pounds, right? Her mind, her, her illness, her denial has filtered that out. It is distorted reality. Addicts and alcoholics experience the same thing. It distorts the, the, the thing that's, that to us is right in front of us. They legitimately can't see that. That's why it's an unconscious mechanism. Now, do you get, the, you mentioned that you get your referrals from the state. Do you also have sometimes people contact you directly? Sure. That maybe for family members, I, maybe for, and are able to accommodate them? Um, we can take people off the street, although that's extremely rare, and and the, and we can take people directly from a, a detox, and that's all something that all of us uh, can do at times. It, the problem with that is you got to have a history. You got to have people checked out. I mean, these individuals uh, and my folks have been out there for a long time. Are they using drugs? I got to know what their physical condition is. They need to see a doctor. So they're going to be medically clear, and that's what detox is all about. They're going to be safe. Otherwise, if I take them in or I bring them in without medical clearance, they could have seizures. You know, I don't have any medical. I have a nurse who works with me, you know, and, and as a nurse, but also um, she works as an as executive assistant, but she's only there 10, 12 hours a week. So if I have a medical emergency, if somebody has a seizure, I got to call 911, get them down there and get the person sent to the emergency room. So the ability to slow people down and have them in a place with this medical individuals and uh, overseeing them and checking them out, while at the same time having the clinical people get a history, that's important because when they come to see me for an interview, we have to have that information in front of us to make the best decision because my house, our house, is not the best house for, for everybody yet. You know, it's it, it's it's somewhat it, it's very structured. It's a word that people would say, and not everybody wants that. They'll say they want it, but then when they come in, and they have to do this, 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 and you can't do this, 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 is that a lot of our guys will struggle against that. So, we'll say to them in an interview, "I know you want to come here, but I think it would be better if you went to some of the other great programs that are around here, who are maybe not as structured." I don't want them to come into my program and struggle. That's not humane. I want them to succeed. I want to set everybody up into the best program possible, and it always is an EMS. Is this your meeting at the at tonight for all the all the residents to watch you? Or, or no, this? I don't want them to watch me. <laughs> they listen to me enough. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> now you sometimes have people uh, that you apparently you have people you interview yeah. decide they don't really fit you. Do you have some that side in your program? Sure. And they don't. Once they're in, they realize the structure isn't what they're looking for. Absolutely. Do you, do people get referred to you through the courts? 
Sure. Oh, you do? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. But, the, but it's your decision to keep him, but yeah. is it the court? Yeah, I make the final decision. Well, I, I fought that battle. Yeah. Uh, when I first came in there in 2009, the agency had a, was working with, always worked with probation. I, at any given time, I, I don't know, 25, 30, 40% of people on probation. And they used to be on parole. And, and in some courts I work with, in some courts I wouldn't work with, because, uh, and I think that's changing, is that the, the parole officer, and, and not all of them, I had a couple of good ones, but some of them, they felt that they were the bottom line, that it wasn't my decision clinically when a guy should go. They'd want to come down, yell and scream, show the gun, and all this thing. It, 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 that doesn't really help anybody. When somebody, it's their time to go, that's my decision. I don't want somebody in there. I don't want somebody in there too long so I end up kicking them out. If I see their behavior is deteriorating, I will work with them to either go to another program, go back into transitional, or I will give them a completion because they have enough failures in their life. I don't want them to have another failure on top of me. Sometimes they don't like my decisions, but it's a decision I make. I've had some problems with probation officers and parole officers, like I said, who wanted to micromanage me back then. You know, they wanted, uh, uh, they wanted, uh, you know, be almost part of my treatment plan. Uh, I had to report, it was like I was reporting to them when somebody was done. I said, no, I won't do that. And like we work with Malden all the time. We work with the probation department, the judge there, the drug court. We have a fantastic relationship with them in, in, in Chelsea and, and, and uh, so most programs around here. Um, I'm not trying to get you more business because I think right now you're probably fully occupied. Uh, yeah. To, uh, yeah. But if someone, based on what we've talked about sure. tonight, wanted to contact you, could yeah. they call you or email you? Well, they can email me, but they're probably going to get. They probably won't get me directly. That's all right. And, right. Is that I have a woman by the name of Linda Hawkins, who is my uh, clinical coordinator, who does all my intakes, and we have a system. All houses have have a system. The one thing that I, I pretty much will guarantee is a live person will answer the phone like that and, and, and either get to her or they'll get to her message machine. Uh, if somebody is calling, they're down the street here, right? They're down the street in Pleasant Street, and they're still using, and they want help, or their mother is calling. I get a lot of calls from mothers. Yeah, I would think you know, so, yeah. Yeah. Want help is the answer is going to be, please go to a detox because we want them medically screened. At that point in time, we can consider working with them, but usually we'll encourage them to go from, from a detox to a CSS program, which is like a 30-day program in which they can get medically checked out and clinical stuff, and then go to a holding. So all of our programs, we're all backed up right now. We all have waiting lists. So I would rather have them in that situation where they're being watched, where they don't have access to drugs and alcohol, than being at home. Because then what ends up happening, you have to screen them all coming in to make sure that, that they've been straight yeah. during that time. Interesting enough, I thought for some reason years ago the process in, in a lot of cases was if someone were arrested or were, were in that situation in the private environment, they would go to detox, which I think insurance-wise only covers them for five days, yeah. and then they would from there go to some kind of a sure. program. Sure. And that's the way it was, yeah. but that's not your program. Well, no, it's not mine. It's the way the system is now. Yeah. Now, now I, and again, I have to say is that working with DPH, who is my funder, is is that we and, and I am open to certain circumstances where somebody could come from not the usual way, but the way the system was set up and supported because you know all these TSS and CS all these programs all these acronyms they're all funded by the state so 
a DPH is the one in the Bureau of Substance Abuse that wanted the system, these transitional programs done this way, and it's worked out very well. The problem is they just aren't enough beds, and the waiting list can be long. So people want quicker access to get into these programs, mm. so sometimes we struggle with that. Mm. Uh, aside from the addiction itself, yeah. mental illness, uh, that plays a part in, in, I would assume, a certain percentage of your clients or your residents? Yeah. It used to be called dual diagnosis, now co-occurring disorders. And I would say, in the research would bear out uh, anywhere 40, 60% of the people are coming yeah. in, yeah. sometimes more, sometimes yeah. less, yeah. Yeah. have have a what we call an access diagnosis of, of mental health along with substance abuse. Mm. I think most of us buy into the self-medication model. And the old idea that I just drank too much booze and that's why I, I get addicted, sure, that can happen. Those aren't the people that I see. The people that I see usually have troubled childhoods and they have genetics in the family that set themselves up. They had depression and anxiety as a young child and they turned to drugs and alcohol in order just to feel better. It was, they found an antidepressant, like when I talked about the opiates, and then advanced to that, and then to feel better just to get through the day. And then what ends up happening, it doesn't work for them anymore, but they can't stop. And so they get, they get arrested, their family, you know, bad things happen to them, which needs to happen, and then they get referred to a detox and they get into the system. So, Ed, that when they're sobered up and, and they come down to my place, the depression's still there. The anxiety is still there. So we work with them in, in getting that assessed uh, at the appropriate time. And if people need antidepressant medication, we refer them to somebody that can, can make that assessment. We don't prescribe anything in our program. But what we all do to run these recovery homes is that, and they're on a lot of meds. These guys are on a lot of meds coming to us, is that, they they really medicate themselves under our supervision. Mm. So we keep the meds, and we give them out to at the appropriate time. We make sure they take the right thing. We sign off. They see off, and everything is locked up. Mm. Linda's phone number, can we have that? Well, you have my general number, which oh, is... Oh, this is for the audience. Excuse me? The, for, you know, if, if someone wanted to call you, or okay. you could be directed to her... Uh, yeah, 781-321-2600. That's Eastern Middlesex Alcoholism Services. And again, that's a somewhat dated alcoholism is that eventually we would probably change it to a Eastern Middlesex Addiction Services. I uh, was thinking of that when they put your uh, <laughs> logo on. I said, that times have changed. But, they really have. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been very informative. I, I think maybe uh, people out there, even though we didn't get into some of the symptoms that maybe people should be doing, right. uh, uh, helping some in their family and maybe themselves, that that would be another whole program on its own. But I Probably. appreciate you coming by, Tim. Oh, yeah, thank and, you for and, inviting and, me. And uh, hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Not as a well. client. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank so, you. Yeah, good. Thanks a lot, Tim. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, I had a couple of things I wanted to mention because I only do a show once a month. On occasion, there are things that I think of interest I'd like to touch on. Uh, one thing to, uh, as a public announcement, the uh, the Malden Chamber of Commerce um, from 5.30 to 7.30, um, Wednesday, uh, th this is Wednesday, this is going to be Thursday, November 9th, at On Stage Dance Company at 665 Salem Street Mall. Then they're going to have a, um, a new m member mix, and that is, a, is really a networking of people 
both prospective members uh, uh, for the, within the, the business community, people who have things that they think other people might be interested in, and they can um, go to this event, which is tomorrow night between 5.30 and 7.30 at 6.65 Salem Street, and that's the um, on-stage dance company. That, that's the Pythian building in Maplewood Square, and if you're a member of the chamber, it's free. If you're, if, uh, you're not, it's only a charge of $10, and... Um, it includes free hors d'oeuvres and beverages. So I think it's a good take-in, particularly if you have a business or, or an idea you wanted to expose other people to. Another thing I wanted to touch on um, is, uh, very quickly, on the election, um, it, it was not a great turnout. There were some surprises. Unfortunately, we don't have a daily newspaper any longer, but there was a couple of upsets. One was um, uh, there's a new city councilor at large will be sworn in, Stephen, Steve Winslow, who, who finished a strong third in the election. And um, he's going to come in new. He's replacing David D'Angelo, who finished close behind him, but not, but w- was not reelected. And also in, in Ward Two, Rob McCarthy uh, was elected by two votes, and over the incumbent. And unfortunately, uh, when you look at the result, you see that uh, Emmanuel Marsh, who was serving uh, um, just his first finished his first term, ended up there with three. He lost by two votes on a reelection, and it ended up that uh, there were three write-ins, and there were obviously about 33 blanks. In Ward 6, there was another little bit. It wasn't a total surprise, but I think some people were thinking the result's going to be different. And in that instant, um, that that position had been vacated by Neil Kinnon, who was seeking a, a CFO position with the city. And Dave Kamel, uh, who was a newcomer, defeated uh, Jerry Leone, who was running off the school committee to, for the council seat. But one thing I wanted to do to touch on very quickly, if it was a little time remaining, there was a paper passed as best I could find out about it, and I, I was a little surprised on the on the um, in the October meeting, uh, the council uh, voted to uh, send to a whole home rule petition to the state house to allow uh, retired uh, police under certain conditions to represent the uh, the city in in uh, in detail traffic details because of the shortage of available services sometimes of of, of police purposes per- persons to do these kind of situations and uh, anyway I don't th- unfortunately we're out of time but I think that paper should be looked at twice on it's gone into the state house and. Um, it, it, um, when I when I received it, it said Paul Conn and Ward One was the sponsor of the paper. I don't even know if the thing is legal, but maybe we can talk about that at, at my next uh, program. And thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Mm-hmm.